Thank you for listening to part two of this two-part episode of Manufacturing Success. In case you missed it, part one is currently available on fisherphillips.com. Well, if joy silk's not the law of the land, and it could be six to 12 months before it actually is addressed and decided by the labor board, are employers, specifically manufacturing employers, having to deal with joy silk right now? Well, that's a good question. And I think my last answer was a little misleading because we don't have six to 12 months to wait and figure out what we want to do. I mean, people, the manufacturing employers are being presented now uh, with, with joy silk type demands. Um, we know that unions have gotten the message uh, all across the country that, that joy silk will be revived. And they know that they need to start trying to build a case for it every chance that they can get in order for them to get the benefit of a bargaining order. Um, as as we, we've already discussed, our practice is national and, and you and I and our partners across the country are dealing with organizing drives everywhere. And we're seeing this with manufacturer, manufacturing employers. Uh, we're seeing it in other industries as well. Uh, and, and in each of them, you can really see almost the exact same playbook being used by the different unions in the different industries and in different locations. Um, I know you've been involved in, in, in a couple of things, I believe out in California and other places, and you know the language and the letter and the demand letter, all that's very, very similar. It seems to me to be coordinated. What are your thoughts? Yeah, exactly. I, yeah, we, we've encountered it with different employers, not all manufacturing in California, Kentucky, uh, and Texas. So, uh, and it does seem different unions, different industries. Uh, one involves a fledgling uh, entity that is now starting to become uh, a union. And all the, their uh, communications, how they present the demand, it's very similar. So it does seem somewhat coordinated. So I, I would agree. And uh, I think we've talked about this uh, ourselves. And when I'm dealing with clients on it, our point is the law has not changed. Uh, however, we don't want you to be a test case. So they're going to try and get as many of these claims in front of the labor board as quickly as possible. So our, our, our goal is to make sure the clients we're working with don't become those test cases. So anyway, that, that's good information there. Uh, well, based on your experience, what would be some of the um, practical ramifications for manufacturers that the joy silk doctrine did come back? I think first and foremost, it's just gonna be much easier to get a bargaining order and avoid that secret ballot election. Um, and that's, that's really the key here. And I also think that it's just gonna be easy, you know, for less sophisticated employers, smaller employers that may not deal with this and live in this world to fall into the trap of just refusing to recognize the union and not being in a position to articulate a good faith doubt uh, which would result in an unfair labor practice and a bargaining order. Good point. Uh, good answer. And I think it goes right into the next question I had. Uh, the whole uh, premise behind Joy Silk is an employer who doesn't have a good faith doubt as to the union's claim for majority status. So what can you tell us about what is a good faith doubt? Well, that's the $10,000 question. It's a, it's a good question, and it really hasn't been defined by the general counsel. Uh, I have heard her speak on a number of occasions, and she, she just says a good faith doubt. 
a good faith. You just need to articulate what that good faith doubt is. And that's important to understand. You know, when, when you and I were raised in this, we would go ahead and respond to that demand and say we had a good faith doubt just as a matter of course. Um, but she's saying you can't just say it's a good faith doubt. You need to explain why it's a good faith doubt. Now, I would say it's not all bad that she hasn't defined it yet. And I, she's extremely smart and, 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 and I think understands that it, it can't be defined. It's going to be really, really fact specific. And, and that's what we're seeing in our experience is that it's a very fact-specific analysis. And if you look at the, the old cases back in the 50s, it's, it's a very specific analysis. But, but one thing that I think in our manufacturing employers really need to understand is that all of the facts that are related to the initial efforts by the union to organize all the way through how the employer trains its management on dealing with organi organizing drives, to how the employer decides to respond to activity, all those issues are going to be relevant and they're going to be reviewed uh, by, by, the, by the board, by an ALJ um, in, in a hearing. And so it's important to think about that from the very beginning. I think some of the things, the examples of things that we've seen in cases in the past, and just to me, some of the common sense examples I mean, if the language on the on the card is improper, if it doesn't if it doesn't state what needs to be stated, um, that employees actually want that union to represent them, that can be an issue that 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 an employer could rely on. And, and as we talked about earlier, you know, there there are cases where the cards are written in a different language because because the employees may not be English speaking, and it's important to look at the language on the card because the interpreter may not have translated it proper and there may be a legal or a technical argument that you can make. I know you had that situation. Um, I think the other thing, another example is telling employees that that cards are, are, are only to get a vote. You know, a lot of times people that are trying to get cards signed will say, look, you don't have to, you don't, you don't necessarily mean you're going to have a union here, but if you, if you sign a card, you'll get a vote and you can send a message that way. So if you hear rumors about that, that could be a good faith doubt reports of employees that are being threatened to sign a card or, or any other type of pressure tactics that they'll get more money or, or that they could be, uh, I know with, with, you know, there could be immigration issues that have been raised. Um, having a party, you know, I, we, we know about unions where they, they've had, a, you know, card, card signing parties where they're self serving alcohol. If you hear about that, that could be an example of good faith doubt. So any examples of a signature being forged, or if you see examples or hear about examples of employees asking to revoke the card, saying that they're really against it, that they thought that, that it was just gonna get them a vote or, or get the employer's attention, any of those things are gonna be important. But I think the overall thing that's important for an employer to understand, at least coming out of this, this podcast here, is that you need to be able to lawfully and efficiently get this information. As we all know, employers cannot interrogate and ask employees questions to try to elicit this information. So you have to have a process in place to get that information lawfully. Yeah, that, that's all very helpful. Yeah, I, what I'm gathering from your summary there, which is very good, is there's really nothing that's not important that you need to consider everything because uh, it could all be very relevant to a particular unit of employees and a particular uh, employment situation. So everything needs to be considered and uh, uh, evaluated. So I think that's very, 
very helpful. Uh, so what should manufacturing employers do now to be in the best position with Joy Silk not being the law, but I think very likely will be the law for some period of time within the next six to 12 months? What should manufacturing employers do? Well, what you said earlier, I think is spot on. And that is, you know, it's our approach, which is to, to try to help clients avoid being that test case. I mean, the law hadn't changed, but we think it's going to change. In fact, we're confident it's going to change. Will it hold up at the appellate level if it gets appealed? My guess is no. My guess is at some point, if Joy Silk is brought back, it, it could be overturned. But it's going to be very expensive to do that. And, and what we want to do is try to avoid being, being that company. It could happen and you need to be prepared, but you want to try to avoid it. So a couple of things that, that I think are important for employers and our manufacturing employers especially to do. And first is to make sure you educate your supervisors and managers. And it's a little more difficult now because, you know, the don't look at the car, don't accept it, wrap it up, treat it like a hot potato, all that isn't going to save the day. That's not going to be the solution to it. Our, our supervisors, our managers all need to understand how to respond to a demand for recognition. They need to know that if a group of employees approaches the plant manager and says, we have a majority of employees that have signed recognition cards, we demand recognition. That person, all of them need to know how to handle that. Uh, as we've discussed and we've recommended to our clients, somebody needs to be designated as the person that's gonna respond to that type of request. And the supervisors and managers, when you're training them on this, need to understand they need to go to Mike Carruth or they need to go to whoever to um, and, and, and direct those employees to that designated representative. And by the way, give that person a heads up when, when they make that demand so they know what to do and, and, and they're, they're expecting it. Uh, I think it's also important for our, our clients and, and, and manufacturing employers to make sure that their supervisors don't commit an unfair labor practice in the process of dealing with this, that they know that they should never say anything like, well, you can try it, but the company's never going to recognize the union or threat their, the employee status or just say a lot of negative and bad things about the union right off the bat. And then, you know, to me, and, and as we've talked about this in the past, just good communications between supervisors and managers and the employees, just over time, not just as a result of this, but just good relationships are gonna result in those opportunities where employees provide information that could be helpful and that they could show a good faith doubt. Um, for example, there, there could be union activity uh, and an employee goes up to their supervisor and says, look, I know that, that there's all this activity, but it's really being led by a bunch of loud mouths over here, or a bunch of people that are really upset with the company. And I know that the majority of people here just don't want to pay union dues and have a union. I mean, that statement in and of itself, I would argue, is, is good faith doubt in and of itself because we can't go in and interrogate. Um, we want to make sure that supervisors and managers know uh, to be on the lookout for information supporting good faith doubt. So they need to understand that if they hear somebody make that comment, that they should make somebody aware of it and bring it to the HR person's attention. And I guess the last thing I would say is that if the company does refuse recognition based on good faith doubt, 
I think the management team needs to let the managers and supervisors know what's happened, what they've done, and they need to make sure that those managers and supervisors never express any doubt as to the company's position. I think those are, you know, there's a lot to do, but, but I think those are kind of the basics that could put the company in a better position. Well, Steve, all that was excellent information. I definitely appreciate all that. I'm sure everyone listening will appreciate all that too. Now, one thing that I've been doing here on this Manufacturing Success Podcast to give the folks listening a little bit more insight into the guests we've had, I'm going to ask you a series of questions. You just give me the first thing that pops into your mind when I give you these comparisons. And uh, this goes back to one of our podcasts that dealt with people analytics. So I just want to do a little people analytics right here. So I'm just going to give you two things to compare and you just say the first thing that pops in your mind so the listeners have a little better idea of who Steve Mitchell is. Beer versus whiskey. Whiskey. Uh, Bourbon versus scotch. Bourbon. Dog versus cat. Dog. Chocolate versus vanilla. Chocolate. Fast car versus fast boat. Fast car. The real Carolina is in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, or Columbia, South Carolina. As much as I love the Palmetto State in South Carolina, the real Carolina in sports is in Chapel Hill. Well, Steve, thanks for sharing your thoughts today. Thanks for being part of Manufacturing Success Podcast. We hope everyone found today's conversation very helpful, and we look forward to having you join us again. Have a great day. Thanks, Mike. This podcast provides an overview of a specific developing situation. It is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal advice for any particular fact situation.